Well, Luke 15, we, uh, we started this last week, and I told you I was going to try and get through the whole chapter. Didn't make it, really, because this chapter is so rich, we could spend several, several weeks on this chapter. There's three different parables in the chapter uh, that we're looking at in Luke. But they all three fit together. They all three are told in one situation, in one context, to make one singular point. Remember I told you a while back that any time you look at a parable, a parable is told by Jesus primarily to make one singular point. And there's a whole lot that you can dig out of a parable. And you're going to see a little bit of it today. But there is one primary theme that Jesus is always trying to make clear. Now, in chapter 15, I set it up for you in verses 1 and 2. Jesus is in the presence, as he often is, he's in the presence of the worst of the worst. And as you've seen happen over and over and over in the Gospels, uh, Jesus is belittled. Jesus is looked down upon. Jesus is questioned as the Son of God. In fact, he's said to be... uh, a relative of Satan and not the holy God because he keeps the company of sinners. And not just every day I mess up here or there sinners or I told the little white lie sinners, but the worst of the worst. You know, who is the worst guy you can think of? The worst sinner that you can think of? The worst maybe terrorist you can think of? The worst mass murderer you can think of? I mean, that's the level of the guys that Jesus found himself in the company of. Interesting, it says that these men began to surround Jesus because of his character, because of his words of truth. They began to listen to him. And then verse 2 says that the Pharisees and the scribes, those religious leaders of the day, those that we know were marked for their legalism, those guys began to grumble and complain. And so Jesus says, okay... Let me tell you guys a little, little story. And he begins into these parables, these three parables, to teach a lesson primarily to the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious legalists of the day, who were complaining about the company that Jesus was keeping. And so Jesus says, listen, lest you question my purpose, lest you question the reason that I'm here, lest you question the company that I keep and why I keep it, Let me explain to you exactly what I'm doing. And you remember the stories. First story, he says, it's like a guy who has a hundred sheep and he loses one. He'll go out to find that one lost sheep. So is the kingdom of God. In fact, all of heaven will rejoice more over that one lost sheep that is found than the 99 others who think they are righteous on their own. Parable number one. Parable number two, he says, it's like a woman who's lost a coin, a precious coin. She's got ten, but she loses one. Seemingly inconsequential. Apparently not very important. But she's going to search for that one. Why? Because it holds worth in her heart. I told you last week how she would put this in her headdress, and it would be part of how she would court another man. And she would say to that man, by those coins that she would place, she would say, look at what I have... Uh, Look at what I've saved. Look at the hard work I've done. And so she would put herself out there for marriage. This is how she did it. So this one coin was important to her. She says the kingdom of heaven is like this. That we'll sweep the floor to find that one lost coin. And we'll throw a party when we find it. We will rejoice. All of heaven will rejoice. 
And then he gets into this last parable. It's probably the most taught parable in all of Scripture of Jesus. It's probably the most popular. You could probably recite it. You tell it to your kids. Uh, it's one of those Bible stories that's become so popular that uh, I think most people don't even know it's in the Bible. They think it's just an old fairy tale you know, that we tell in America. It's the parable we call of the prodigal son. If you keep it in context, the parable of the prodigal son is probably not the best title. You've seen through chapter 15, you got the parable of the lost sheep. That one lost sheep. You have the parable of the lost coin. A better title would be the parable of the lost now son. We're going to see a son who's lost. But the story's not going to end there. Last week, I showed you the parable of the lost son. Let me quickly review it, and then I want to show you how Jesus wraps up the whole chapter. Because it ties everything in a neat little bow. Verse 11 says, and he said, a man had two sons. Don't forget how Jesus starts this parable. He doesn't start by saying there was one son. More on that later. Verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, essentially, dad, drop dead. Give me my inheritance. Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Keep that in the back of your mind. That he gives the wealth of the father, the inheritance that would come to the sons upon his death. He goes ahead and he divvies it up to his sons. Not just to his son, but he divvies it up to his sons. More on that second son later. Verse 13. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So that he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. A pagan Gentile country, by the way. And he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. 16. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to eat. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread to eat? But I am dying here with hunger. You know the story. This younger son says, Dad, give me my inheritance. I don't care about what your desire is. I want mine now. And that inheritance, you remember, was land. It was the estate of the father. So here's what had to happen. The son had to go and sell his land off quick so he could go on this journey and he could live his life uh, in living with prostitutes, drinking it up, whatever the worst thing that you can imagine the son doing, he went and did it. Now Jesus is telling the story, don't forget, to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the legalists. The, the best of the best, supposedly, of the nation of Israel. And as they hear this story of this younger son, the Pharisees begin to fume. What do they think about this son? What do they think about this story of this rebellious son who dishonors his father, dishonors his family, dishonors his brother, dishonors the whole nation, and dishonors the God of Israel, goes to a Gentile land... What are the Pharisees, the legalists, what do you think they think about this guy? They hate him. He is a picture of the worst of the worst in Jesus' story. Now, you remember where we started? Jesus is hanging out with the worst of the worst. Jesus paints a picture now 
of the worst son of Israel that they could ever imagine. And so you can see the Pharisees, they're just beginning to think, this guy, he's, he's terrible. And what do you think the Pharisees think that the father should do with this son? They should disown him. It's interesting. When a son would do this in Israel, they would actually have a funeral for that son. That's how serious they would take it. And that's how serious they would disown that child. It would be as if to the father and to the mother that that child was dead. They would have his funeral and they would write him off. More on that later. Now what do the Pharisees and the legalists think they should do with this son? You should consider him dead and you should write him off. He has been a shame to the nation and a shame to his family. You know, in Israel... Among the Jews, honor. Honor was one of the highest character traits that you could have. So to shame was the lowest you could go. You were always constantly trying to build your honor in the sight of those around you. This guy is losing his honor. The Pharisees don't like him. But look at what the father thinks of this son. This son who now we get one of the greatest pictures of repentance in all of Scripture. You see what happens to the son? Verse 16. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods of the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, you see the turning of his heart? But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? Here's what I will do. I will get up and I will go to my father. What does this son think about his father? His father is kind. His father is generous. He knows the heart of his father. More on that later. And he knows he can turn back to this kind, compassionate father. And he's going to go back. He's going to make a 180. He is going to repent of his ways. He's going to go back to the father. Look how he wants to go back. I will get up and I will go to my father and here's what I will say to him. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. That's really a word picture in the Greek. You know what it means that I have sinned against heaven? It's the son saying to the father, Dad, my sins are so great that they stack all the way up to the heavens. That's how many sins I can count in my life. So I have sinned against heaven. Now, I don't want you to miss the attitude of this younger son. Because there's going to be a second son, and we're going to contrast attitudes with the two sons. So this son, he turns, he repents, he comes to his senses. He knows the heart of his father. He's going to go back. He's going to throw himself at the mercy of his father. He's going to throw himself at the feet of his father. And he's going to say what? Look at the next verse. 18, or 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Is that humbleness right there? Yeah, sure is. Is that repentance right there? Sure is. I'm not even worthy to be called your son, Father. That's how bad my transgressions were against you. But instead, would you make me as one of your hired men? Now that's his speech that he's practiced. Now look what happens. As the Pharisees are listening to this story, they hate this son. This son is wretched. This son is depraved. Look at what the father thinks. Verse 20. So the son gets up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I told you what that meant last week. 
let me give you a little extra information here. The fact that this father gets up and sees his son from a long way off indicates that his father has been looking for the son. The heart of the father is still tuned to his lost son. He's looking, waiting every day. It's a picture of the father on the front porch looking out on the horizon for a shadow of what might be his lost dead son. What does he do when he sees his son? He doesn't wait for him to get to the front porch and beg for mercy. The picture of the father that Jesus paints for us in this parable is the picture of a father who runs through the town to meet his son on the outskirts. Now let me tell you why theologians think this is important. For a man in Israel to run, he had to do something that was shameful. He had to grab his tunic between his legs. He had to reach down. A tunic was like a long dress that these men would wear. He had to grab his tunic down through between his legs, down by his ankles, and he had to pull it up, tuck it into his belt, so that now he essentially has shorts on. You get in the picture? It was shameful for it. Uh, Jewish man to show his legs it would kind of be like if I got up here more shorts you guys just couldn't you wouldn't hear anything I said just be looking at my white chicken legs it was shameful for a Jewish man to show his legs and so for the text for the story of Jesus to say look at what the father does for this wretched son that the Pharisees are listening to and hating Jesus says, I'll show you what this father's going to do. The father's going to see him when he's a long way off, before he ever gets to town. He's going to pull up his, his uh, tunic, he's going to tuck it in his belt, and he's going to run. He's going to shame himself for the sake of his son. Theologians say that the reason he runs to his son as he's a far way off is because everyone in the town would know the shame of this lost son. And if this lost son were to ever come back, the job of the whole community would be to heap shame upon this son for the sake of the father, for the sake of the family, for the sake of the nation, for the sake of the community, for the sake of the God that they serve. They would all, as a community, heap shame upon him. So you get the picture here of a father that's not going to let that happen. This father is going to pull up his dress, tuck it into his belt, show his chicken legs, and run all the way out to the outskirts to his son. And look what happens when he gets there. He's not going to say, son, where have you been? Son, what have you done? Son, where's all the money? None of that. Would you notice that there is no mention of the sins of the son? The son starts into his little speech here. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you, against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father interrupts. It's as if the father doesn't even hear the words of his son as he's embraced him, as he's kissing him all over. As he has fallen upon the son, on the neck of the son, the son gives into this speech and it's like the father doesn't even hear it. The heart of the father is that he's just glad that his child has turned back. At the slightest indication of repentance, the father will run to the child. Fall upon his neck, embrace him, receive him. Kiss him all over. Take the stench of the pig pen that was remaining on the son. Take it upon himself. Shame himself running through the town to go to this son. You getting a picture of the father that Jesus is painting here? Let me tell you what the Pharisees are thinking now. The Pharisees are thinking, 
What kind of father would do this? He should have waited on the porch. He should have called the community to stone this son. If he doesn't do that, he should have just hired him out as the lowest of the lowest of workers. Paid him a daily wage, if anything. So now the Pharisees, those legalists who are listening to the story, they're thinking, I don't like the son. And because the father has received the son in the way that the father has, I don't like the father. Okay? Don't miss that. Their contempt now is not just for the son. The contempt of the Pharisees is for the father who would receive such a son. Keep going. Verse 22, here's what the father says. But the father said to his slaves, interrupting his son's confession, Quickly, bring out the best robe. The best robe was the mark, the highest mark of honor in the family, in a Jewish family. It was saved for the father to wear on the best, uh, on the highest of occasions. The father wouldn't even wear it daily. The father would wear it for a wedding. He would wear it for a festival. He would wear it every now and then. For a marked occasion, he says to his servants, go and get that robe. Not just any robe, not just the family robe, but get the robe, the best robe. Go get my robe and put it on the son. So the father with this robe bestows honor and dignity back to his lost son. Not just that, he says, put a ring on his hand. This was the signet ring of the family. The signet ring of the family was, the, was this ring, and it had, it had a marking on the ring. And you could use that ring to mark a stamp in, say, hot wax or with ink. You could mark documents, and you could make a legal mark of the family with that ring. That's what he puts on his lost son. So he puts the best robe on him, a mark of dignity and honor. He puts the best ring on him. He bestows authority back to this son. He now has the full authority of a son again. He's back in the family. Look what else he gives him. Not just a robe and a ring. He puts sandals on his feet. It's not just because the kid's barefoot. It's not just because he might step on a rock. Servants and slaves didn't wear shoes. But the family wore shoes in this culture. And so for the father to say, go and get the sandals and put them on my son. It's the father saying to everyone around, this child has been fully restored. Isn't that a good picture of a father? Isn't that that a beautiful picture of how the father will receive a son who shows just the smallest inkling of repentance? Keep going. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Now let me speed through this a little bit because I'm getting behind catching you up. For this son of mine was dead. Remember I told you they probably had a funeral for this kid. For this son of mine was dead. Literally. He was considered dead. But now he is alive. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. You see a reoccurring theme in all three of these stories. We lost a sheep, we found it, let's celebrate. We lost a coin, we found it, let's celebrate. All heaven celebrates when one is lost. All heaven celebrates when one is lost. All heaven will celebrate the estate of the Father, the whole community, the entire kingdom of this great and mighty Father will do what? When one lost son is found, they will celebrate. They will rejoice. It's a picture of what will happen in heaven when one lost sinner turns back to the gracious Father. 
Now, I told you all that so that we could get to the very last part of this parable. Uh, Can I tell you that the primary emphasis of this chapter is not on a lost sheep, it's not on a lost coin, and it's not even on the lost younger son. In context, the point of this chapter is to answer the original question from verses 1 and 2. Jesus finds himself around the worst of the worst. Verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes, the legalists, the religious guys of the day, they begin to grumble and complain. They don't like it. In essence, they're saying, what are you doing, Jesus, if you're the son of God? You are shaming the nation. And you are shaming the God that you say you represent. The Pharisees don't like any of this. They don't like the son And they don't like the father that would receive such a son. You tracking with me here? Back to verse 1 and 2. The Pharisees don't like... They don't like the company that Jesus is keeping. And they don't like Jesus because he is gracious to the worst of the worst. Do you see where Jesus is going here? So Jesus turns this whole thing around now. And at the end, he goes back to the Pharisees and to the scribes. And he's going to finish off these parables, talking directly to them. And now, the whole time they're thinking, I don't like any of the people in these stories. They're finally going to get a guy that they like in Jesus' story. And they're going to identify with this guy, and then Jesus is going to slam the door in their face. Look at what he does here. This is just masterful teaching. Verse 25, Now his older son was in the field. Who do you think the older son in the field is? It's a picture of the Pharisees, the legalists. He's near to the Father. He has this, uh, I I don't even want to say relationship with the Father, but he's closer to the Father than the first son. The first son goes to a far off pagan land. He's the worst of the worst that you could ever imagine. Jesus says, let me tell you about another son. He's not very far away. He's off in the field doing what he thinks is his duty. Working hard so he thinks. But look at the story. This older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. The whole community, the whole kingdom of the father is celebrating. Look at the response of this son. If you didn't read the story, what would you think the response of a brother who lost his other brother would be when he sees that there's a party? Something is going on. The father has called a party. There is rejoicing in the kingdom. There's rejoicing in the estate. You would think this guy would say, hey, something good must have happened. Maybe my brother's come home. Maybe he's been found. Maybe he's not dead. Look at what he says instead. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, this is the servant talking to the older brother, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. That phrase there, safe and sound, it's a play on the word shalom. Which, you may know, means peace. And so this servant says to the older brother, Your father has received your younger brother back, and he has brought peace back. Now look at what this older brother thinks. 29, or 28, But he, this is the older brother, became angry and was not willing to go in. Now, parallel this guy, this son, to the younger son. 
younger son's far off, the worst of the worst, spends everything that the father gives him, comes to his senses and says, I'm going back and I'm going into my father. The older son, not so far away, but is he, is he any closer to his father? Is he any closer to the heart of his father? Does he know his father any better? No. He becomes angry. Why? Because he doesn't like what's going on. He doesn't like that his brother has been reinstated. He doesn't like that peace has been given to the worst of the worst. Does this guy know the heart of his father? Does this guy have any clue to the compassion or the kindness or the grace or the mercy? Does he have any, any inclination uh, of any... Does he have anything that resembles the heart of the father? There is no indication of it. He's nearby. He's not very far away. But he has no clue to the heart of the Father. And he has no apparent love for the things that his Father loves. Keep going. He became angry and was not willing to go in. His younger brother was willing to go in. He's not willing to go. And his father came out. Now, parallel this again to the story of the younger son. The younger son comes back. What happens? The father goes out to him. We've got another son. In fact, uh, let me put it to you this way. Let me give you uh, the end before we get there. We've got in this parable two lost sons. We've got one son lost in the pig pen. And we've got one son, you might say, lost in the pew. Okay? On both occasions, what does the father do? The father goes out to the son. Are you getting a picture of the father? The father goes out to this son. He went out to the worst of the worst, and now he's going to go out to a guy who thinks he's pretty good. But the father came out and began pleading with him. Literally, the father begins to beg this son. What a picture of the father. You know what the Pharisees are thinking? I don't like this guy again. For the older son not to go into his father's party, because you realize that this party wasn't to honor so much the son who had returned, but it was to honor the father who extended grace. Nobody at the party was celebrating this wretched son who had come back. Everyone at the party was celebrating the father who would allow his son to come back and be at peace. And so for this older boy not to go into his father was shameful on his family. And so for the father to come out to the older son was not something that the Pharisees liked to see happen. The father brought shame upon himself once again to go out to another lost son. Keep going. 29. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. I don't have time to unpack all this, but do you see the heart of the legalist? Do you see the heart of the Pharisee in this text? The older son says, look, I've been perfect. I've never done anything wrong. I've remained nearby. I've kept the commandments. What story does this resemble in the Gospels? The rich young ruler. I've never done any of those things. All of those things I've kept from my youth. 
But he answered and said to his father, Look, for many years, many years, many years, I've been serving you. I've been your, literally, doulos. I've been your slave. He's going a little overboard, isn't he? I've been your slave, Dad. What kind of attitude does this son have about serving his father? Does he serve his father out of love? No, he serves his father out of duty. He sees himself in the household as a slave. How did a Pharisee see himself in the economy of God's kingdom? As a taskmaster, as a law keeper, as a duty doer. They were slaves to the law. Great picture of the Pharisee right here. I have been serving you. I have been your slave. And I have never neglected a command of yours. I have been perfect. And yet you have never given me a goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Who does he want to celebrate with? Does he want to celebrate with the whole community? No. He's got a narrow view of who he wants to celebrate with. It's me and my buddies. Keep going. 30. But when this son of yours, he can't even call him his own brother. How does the Pharisee, how does the older son look at the son who's been redeemed, at the son who's been saved, at the son who's been brought back into a right relationship with the father? He doesn't like him. And he doesn't even call him a brother. He says, this son of yours, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now look at 31 and 32, because this is the punchline of the story. As Jesus closes it for the Pharisees who are listening. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me. Literally, you've always been near me. Okay? And all that is mine is yours. Don't forget that the father, at the beginning of the parable, divided his inheritance among how many of the sons? Both sons. So not just the younger son got his inheritance, but the older son got his inheritance. So all that the father has is literally the older sons. The younger son spent everything he's got. Only thing the father has left, he's already given to the younger son. Son, I've already blessed you as much as I could. Incidentally, why do you think the son is so upset to come back and find a party? Big party using all the resources of the kingdom of the father. Because it's all his. He doesn't like it going out. He says, son, you have always been near me. You've always been within proximity of me. And I've given you everything that I can give you. Point, Pharisee, you've always been hovering around, thinking that you're so close. And I've poured out blessings upon you. I've given you everything that I can give you to build this relationship. It's not worked. I've got one son who's lost far, far away. And I've got one son who's just as lost, even though he's right here with me. Although he thinks he's perfect, he is no more in right relationship with me than the son in the pig pen. 32. If you want to know the heart of Jesus, if you want to know the heart of God... If you want to know the heart of the Father in this story, if you want to know why Jesus hangs out with the worst of the worst, if you want to know what Jesus thinks about the legalist grumbling 
about him hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. Look at the last verse. Son, we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead, and he has begun to live again, and he was lost, and he has been found. It's a picture of resurrection. And the kingdom of God will celebrate when one son comes home. Now let me tell you this as I wrap up. Um, This story is incomplete. The Pharisees who are sitting here listening to this, they're left with one big question in their mind. You know what the question is? As they listen to this great story from Jesus, the question is this. What did the other son do? The father says now to this lost son who's within proximity, I'm here. We can have a right relationship. Come on in to the party. Don't stay away. Repent, humble yourself. Come back into a right relationship. I'm coming out to you just like I came out to the younger son. But the story ends. And we don't know. We don't know what the older son does. You know why we don't know? Because the answer lies in the original question. Or more specifically, the answer lies within those who are are originally questioning Jesus and the heart of Jesus. The answer is in the heart of the listeners. The answer is in the heart of the legalist. The answer is in the heart of the older brother, Pharisee. So Jesus just throws the story in their lap. He brings this thing full circle and he says, What are you going to do? You who think you are so good, think you are so perfect, there is no unrighteousness in you. I would rather you be like the son who was so far away but came to his senses, who recognized his sin, picked himself up, took a step back towards the Father, I'll run out to him. I'll run out to you, but you've got to humble yourselves. You've got to repent. You've got to what? You've got to recognize that you have sin. You've got to recognize that there's a problem. And I'll gladly receive you in. And we'll go in and we'll sit you down and we'll have a party for two lost sons. Listen to what one noted theologian said about this incomplete story. He said, the end isn't there. There's one section missing. Now, I would love to write one. I think maybe this would be a good ending. And the older son fell on his knees before his father saying, I repent for my lovelessness, my cold service, my pride, and my selfishness. Forgive me, Father. Make me a true son. Take me to the feast. At which point the father embraced him and kissed him, took him in and seated him at the table by his brother. And all rejoiced in the sons, plural, who had been reconciled to their loving father. He says, I like that ending. Or maybe another shorter ending. The son, seeing his father's love, compassion and grace, came to his senses about his wicked heart humbled himself, repented, and reconciled himself to his father. But you know what? I don't get to write the end. Who did write the end? The Pharisees wrote the end. And here is the end they wrote. And the older son, don't miss this now, and the older son, being outraged at his father, picked up a piece of wood and beat him to death in front of everyone. That's the ending they wrote. That's the cross. That's what they did just a few months after this story. And by the way, they congratulated themselves on their righteousness 
and on their righteous act that preserved the honor of Israel and Judaism and true religion and the honor of God. You see why this story is here? Do you see why chapter 15 is here? Chapter 15 is here not primarily so that we learn about a lost sheep, a lost coin, or even two lost sons. Chapter 15 is here so that Jesus can make it clear the heart of the Savior, the heart of the Father. He finds worth in apparently worthless things. And He will receive and He will celebrate the worst of the worst. And He will receive and He will celebrate even the one who thinks who thinks he's righteous. It still needs repentance. This is the story of the heart of the God that we serve. This is the story of the heart of why Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And yet they questioned him. They said, Jesus, why would you do that? You act more like the son of Satan than you do the son of God. Why? Because they had the attitude of the older brother. We've been doing this stuff for all these years. And now this guy, he comes back and you receive him. What about all the good stuff that I've done? It doesn't amount to anything. They are both in need of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of a loving God and Father. Let's pray.